Welcome to the History of the Saints podcast. My name is Glenn Rawson, series host. What you are about to listen to is an episode about the documentary history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode is one of more than 250 presentations from 1805 and the birth of Joseph Smith the Prophet through 1877 and the death of Brigham Young. This series interviews some of the finest scholars of our time and presents the latest in historical research and facts as it relates to early Latter-day Saint history. And it comes from the long-running, highly acclaimed television documentary series, History of the Saints. If you have a desire to learn the history in depth and detail, then this podcast is for you. Thank you for joining us. This idea that God responds to everyone and anyone who seeks Him, that's a wonderful main pillar of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ as Joseph Smith reveals it. And you can see the origin of that in his experience with the Bible. And the result of acting on that instruction from the Bible is the first vision, which is our cultural narrative. That's our Genesis story. That's who we are. Welcome to a new season of History of the Saints. As promised, we're going to take you back, all the way back to the very beginnings of the Restoration, the foundations of Mormonism. Now with that, it seemed altogether fitting that we would begin where Mormonism itself began, the first vision. Now why begin there? Because President Gordon B. Hinckley said that the first vision was the hinge pin on which this whole cause turns. Everything, he said, turns on the reality of that first vision. With that, this episode of History of the Saints is about that monumental and foundational theophany, the first vision. When you listen to Joseph Smith tell the story, it's a crisis. The first vision is a resolution to a crisis. And that's probably the best way to understand it. Um, the crisis is that there are a lot of churches. And which one of them is right? How shall I know it? It's a crisis of knowing. How to act, I did not know. And unless I could get more knowledge than I then had, I would never know. At about the age of 12 years, my mind became seriously impressed with regard to the all-important concerns for my immortal soul. My mind became exceedingly distressed, for I became convicted of my sins. Joseph Smith. And this isn't just a problem of, I wish I knew the right doctrine. The, that's just the means to the end. Knowing the right doctrine is the way to gain forgiveness, which is the way to get to heaven. If he doesn't find out which of all the churches is right, he's going to be damned. And that's awful. That's an awful thought for him. It's a terrible, terrible problem for this teenage boy. I found there was a great clash in religious sentiment. If I went to one society, they referred me to one plan, and another to another each one pointing to his own particular creed as the summum bonum of perfection. Considering that all could not be right, and that God could not be the author of so much confusion, I determined to investigate the subject more fully. Joseph Smith 
you could say there's an argument that's going on, and it's between Calvinist Protestantism and Arminian Protestantism. That's just a fancy way of saying that people like Presbyterians are telling Joseph Smith and everyone else that they are depraved sinners and that they've been that way from the fall of Adam and that there's nothing they can do about it. They're totally depraved and that they are um, they have no chance at redemption unless they've been elected to grace unconditionally by God's arbitrary sovereign will. God does all the deciding about who will be saved and who will be damned, and He's already done it. And there's no use trying to figure out the pattern or system in it, because there isn't any. Nobody deserves to be saved, so if anybody gets saved at all, it's, it's God's love that's at work. Methodism teaches the doctrine that we're not all totally and completely depraved, True, they would say that as a result of the fall of Adam, we're, we're fallen, we're sinful by, by nature. But there's a part of us, the Methodists would teach, that can choose Christ. That Christ offers His grace to us, and we can decide whether to receive it. Of course, the family itself, his family, were confused over the matter. His father didn't belong to a religion. And his mother and his sister and one brother and possibly two brothers joined the Presbyterians. Joseph himself says that he was inclined toward the Methodists. Uh, but uh, so there was that confusion in the home. So what you've got is this world of competing versions of Christianity and that's the, a big part of the external environment. So we're interested in the experience with James 1 and 5, which is in itself a revelation. He lives in a time and place where the Bible is the archive of all God said. And so it's the book of answers. That's where you'll go to find out whether the Presbyterians or the Methodists are right. And that's where you'll go to learn everything you ever needed to know. Well, he's been trying, and it hasn't helped. And he's stumped. And then he happens upon a verse that says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And this is a new way to think about what the Bible is saying. In this way of thinking, the Bible isn't the archive of everything God has ever said, which covers every possible exigency. It's a, a book full of examples of people who had problems and got help from God. And it becomes an invitation to go and do likewise. And I believe that was an epiphany for Joseph. No passage of Scripture ever came with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. It's huge. And that's the catalyst that gets Joseph Smith into position for the first vision. Joseph Smith's reading of James 1 and 5 and his reflecting on it is in some ways the seed of Mormonism. When we put all of the pieces of evidence together, 
and ask what happened. We know that Joseph Smith has this very, very important encounter with the Bible and that he goes to the woods as a result of it. I just determined that I'd ask him. I immediately went out into the woods where my father had a clearing and went to the stump where I had struck my axe when I had quit work. And I kneeled down and prayed. So that tells us something. It tells us something about what, how Joseph spends his time and what he's up to and where he goes, right? His mother has already, um, or his mother's memoir tells us that she used to go to a cherry grove in Vermont or there was a place in New York where the family members were inclined to go to pray. So this is what the Smith family does. They go to the woods or go to someplace private to pray. He kneels down, and two of his accounts emphasize that he's not able to get very far with his prayer. Uh, The 1835 account in his journal tells about hearing something like walking behind him, something as if somebody's behind him, and that's disturbing and so on. And then his tongue becomes swollen, it cleaves to the roof of his mouth. Immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time that I was doomed to sudden destruction. He said it was he was seized by a power that was greater than any human being he could comprehend. It was an actual being from the unseen world. That's the way he explained it. And uh, evidently, he it had physical force upon his body, and, uh, and it was to the point where he was almost uh, unable to speak. He was so powerful. He wouldn't have been surprised at the idea that there's a devil and he opposes God. I think what surprised Joseph is that the devil made him such a particular target and that the power was so astonishing. It's one thing to listen to a sermon about the devil having power, and it's another thing to have him bind your tongue and make you wish you could become uh, non-existent. You've got the power to act for yourself, and now you've got an opposition, right? Which is really making it a choice. Um, Joseph can now decide what to do. He can quit praying, and he feels like it, right? He's just about to abandon himself to this power. Or he can keep praying because he's got the will, the ability to make that choice. And he tells us, and this is very important to me, he says, just about at the moment where I was going to abandon myself, in other words, this moment of decision, this moment of choice, I exerted all my power to call upon God to deliver myself from the enemy which held me bound, and the heavens open. Uh, A pillar of light descends, he sees two personages in the pillar, and he's delivered from this enemy. A pillar of fire appeared above my head, which presently rested down upon me, and filled me with unspeakable joy. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around, and yet nothing consumed. A few years back, History of the Saints began production of seven seasons of a documentary television series titled History of the Saints. Season one 
Foundations of the Restoration. Season 2, Joseph Smith's Kirtland. Season 3, From Pentecost to Persecution, The Missouri Years. And Season 4, Joseph Smith's Nauvoo. Then, three more seasons telling the story of Brigham Young and the Saints, beginning with the Nauvoo Exodus in 1846, titled Gathering to the West. Then, Building Zion. And finally, The Kingdom Endures. All together, over 100 hours of Latter-day Saint pioneer history. For these and all of History of the Saints books and DVD products, visit us at historyofthesaints.org. Joseph described that in the midst of that light, he saw two personages. First one appeared and then the other. Their brightness and glory defied all description. I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness, surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday. Joseph wants to know how to be forgiven. And he says in his earliest account that the first thing that God says to him is, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And this account emphasizes the atonement of Christ very much. It is all about Christ as Redeemer, Savior, and also a millennial Christ. It prophesies the coming end of the world and the Savior's impending millennial reign. And it's quite beautiful. I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. He had come there for the purpose of determining which of the churches was the correct church, because that was the subject of these revivals in the area and the whole discussion in the, in the neighborhood around about. No sooner did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right. For at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong, and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. study the accounts carefully, including the one in the Pearl of Great Price, we notice that, you know, if everything that happened is just what's described there, this could have taken 30 seconds or a minute or so. And what I think it's most safe to conclude is that Joseph is giving us a memory of it, probably not everything he remembers about it, and that even beyond that, he's not remembering all of it. Many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. And I saw many angels. It's significant that among those other things that Joseph was told, it was revealed to him that the fullness of the gospel would at some future time be made known unto him. When he came out of the vision, he found himself lying on his back. And it was some time before he obtained the strength to be able to get up and, and make his way back to, his, to the house. I think it's, it's evidence of, uh, 
of the contact that he'd have with the divine. A person, uh, of course, can't come into the presence of God, I don't think, without some, some physical, uh, physical impact on his mind and upon his physical self. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. When the light had departed, I had no strength, but soon recovering in some degree, I went home. The only thing he says is that he mentioned to his mother that he knew apparently she could see that something might be amiss with him, and the only thing he remarked was that he found out for himself that Presbyterianism wasn't true. That was the only thing he said about it. Joseph mentions three times that he is counseled not to join any of the churches. If Joseph went home and told his mother of his vision and uh, imparted that data to her, I would be confident that Lucy would have said, if it's good enough and right for my son from what he has heard, I will not do it either. But she, uh, she does attend, she does encourage her children, Hiram, Sophroni, and Samuel, uh, and uh, they accept uh, the Christian faith, the Presbyterian Church, join the church, and, and become full-fledged members. And uh, based on volume two of the session records, which, do sur- which does survive, uh, they remain active in the church until September of 1828. We don't know who Joseph told and when he told, except he says that he told a Methodist minister some few days after it occurred. And he says he told his mother right after it occurred, but he only says that he told her that he had learned that Presbyterianism wasn't true. We don't have any historical record that Joseph tells anyone else. The minister just said, you know, that type of stuff doesn't happen anymore and it's of the devil, etc. And Joseph says, I was surprised at, at how, uh, how angry everybody, how exercised everybody got uh, about the whole thing, me being so young. But he, then he goes on to say persecution increased with me uh, continuing to tell the story. I think he himself says uh, in that record that early on he did tell the story and got hammered for it. And I think this idea of him uh, being tight-lipped and close to the, the chest, I think that develops over time because uh, he took so much abuse when he was fairly free and easy and innocent uh, about the whole thing. He didn't go find the Methodist minister thinking that his report was going to sound terribly unusual. I'm guessing that he thought that he was like the other people who had reported to Methodist ministers that they had had an experience, that they had found grace, right? That they've, they've been born again. And I think this is the reason that he's shocked that he's treated the way that he is. He'd heard people report in camp meetings or elsewhere their visions, their experiences. His mom and dad have these kinds of experiences, maybe not on the same scope or scale that Joseph's reporting, but 
you know, it seems legitimate. It seems like what Christian people do. And I think uh, Joseph is very surprised at how poorly received his report of his vision is. My soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy, and the Lord was with me. But I could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. Nevertheless, I pondered these things in my heart. I think he tests out what he'll say about it and how with the Methodist minister. And I think when he's so painfully rejected, he probably clams up about it for who knows how long, at least a decade. So I think that's much more likely. That's what the historical record shows. And I don't think that's psychologically um, unlikely. I think sometimes we create an unrealistic expectation when we think he runs right home, sits the whole family down, as all 14-year-old boys do, right? And say, let me tell you everything about my innermost feelings and thoughts. I don't, I don't think that's likely. I think he internalizes it and thinks an awful lot about it. Who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision. I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. And I could not deny it, neither dared I do it. I had now got my mind satisfied so far as the sectarian world was concerned. I had found the testimony of James to be true. Joseph Smith saw the Father and the Son. They were real. He learned that all of the churches of his day were not true. He learned also that God still loves and communicates with his children and that the fullness of the gospel of salvation would once again be brought back to the earth. Now this event, the first vision, is the genesis of Mormonism, the foundational beginnings right here. Now if Joseph Smith was telling the truth, if he was an honest man, then this event is the greatest message since the resurrection of Christ. But if he was not telling the truth, then it is, as President Gordon B. Hinckley said, all the work of this church is a falsehood. Now, to the interested, the historical record can only carry us so far. After that, it becomes for all of us a matter of faith and prayer. I'm Glenn Rawson, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on what you have listened to, please go to historyofthesaints.org. The History of the Saints team that produced this podcast has also produced numerous books and full-length documentaries on early Latter-day Saint church history and the key figures that made that history. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. This podcast of History of the Saints has been produced by Dennis Lyman and Glenn Rawson. History of the Saints is a 501c3 nonprofit organization.